Welcome to the Semper Reformato Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Just two wee verses from the book of Acts this evening. And yet verses that are very important to us. And um, we had been looking last time, last week, at the seven sons of Sceva and how darkness is defeating darkness, how darkness is always um, opposing itself. But we saw that what these men intended to do to make money out of a false representation of the gospel was completely changed by God. They were overcome. and The darkness in its self-destructiveness destroyed them. And instead, it made the gospel even more widely known. What they intended for evil, God changed for good. And there was revival. And there was conversions. And they were very definite conversions. Because people came and brought their books with them and at great cost they burned them those books of wicked spells and incantations and they burned them and the word of God grew and prevailed and then comes this little passage of two verses just like a little cameo in the middle of the chapter in the middle of Luke's Four scenes from Ephesus. It talks about Paul's proposed visit to Rome and his proposed visit to Jerusalem, kind of like a tale of two cities. So we're going to look at his visit to Rome first and then his visit to Jerusalem. Somewhere in a, book, in a bookshelf in the study in the house, there's a book that I have, it's by Ray Comfort. And it's entitled, God Has a Wonderful Plan for Your Life, The Myth of the Modern Message. I remember having a representative from a very reliable missionary and evangelistic organization give a report at church three or four years ago. And he was speaking enthusiastically about a young man whom he'd met in the course of his evangelistic work. It turned out the young man was in a very bad mental state. He was on the verge of suicide. He was deeply troubled. He was broken and he was bruised by life. The evangelist brought him into a cafe and sat him down and bought him a cup of coffee and they began to talk and the young man, only in his 20s, just simply poured out his heart to the evangelist, reaching out of his despair for some help. The evangelist reported that he'd been moved almost to tears by the young man's plight. He said to him, or at least he told us that he said to him, please don't despair. God has a wonderful plan for your life. At that point, I was in despair too, because that's not the gospel. Let me show you why from this text in front of us. Paul had a plan. 
His plan was conceived in his heart. Look what it says. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit. You see, at this time, the work in Ephesus, as we learned last week, was in full bloom. The gospel was spreading all over the province of Asia. People were coming to saving faith, coming into fellowship in the church. People were being healed of diseases. Spiritual darkness and wickedness, as we saw last week, was being defeated. And Paul realized that now he could be more useful in evangelism elsewhere. So he purposed in the Spirit. The Greek word for purposed here is the word tithaimai. It's a word that means laid out as you would lay out a table. Well, not for me, obviously. Here's what happens usually on the Lord's Day. We get home from church about half one. And Jeanette says to me, what do you want for your Sunday lunch? And I'd say, what is there? And she'd say, there's eggs. Aye, well, we'll have boiled eggs and toast. But you see, when my son comes for his Sunday lunch, there's no baked beans for him. You want to see the preparations that are done for that? The table is laid out the night before. All the knives and forks are polished. All the best cutlery is put out. All the plates are in place. The menu is carefully planned. There'll be potatoes and there'll be meat and there'll be vegetables. And wait for it, there'll be a sweet that I can't eat. All planned, all laid out. That's exactly what Paul has done. This word implies that everything was in its place. Everything has been pre-designed. Everything is detailed and everything is precise. The idea is that Paul has precisely laid out a plan. It's carefully drafted. His plan is to bring the gospel to Rome and it's driving him. Time ways, you see, it's opportune. At this time, Nero the Caesar has died, the ruler, the emperor of Rome. The Jews had been exiled by Nero from Rome. Remember, we talked a while back about Aquila and Priscilla, who were Roman Jewish Christians and who'd left Rome when around about that time and travelled out into Greece. So now this has been reversed. Jews are being allowed back into the city and Paul is determined to go and his plans are set out and he will travel to Jerusalem via a roundabout route through Macedonia and Greece and then he'll travel overseas to Jerusalem and then he'll travel back across the Mediterranean to Rome and he's going to send out Timothy and Erastus to prepare the way for him so that the meetings will be arranged and the accommodation will be planned. Verse 27. Verse 22, rather, where it says, He sent unto Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him. So you see, it's all planned. It's all ready to go. Paul has sat down and he has figured out all of his plans. Before we go any further, there's one wee thing we need to think about. And it's an enigma. It's a mystery. And I love mysteries. 
And there's a really good mystery story here. Why would Paul want to go to Rome? Who'd want to go to Rome? About 10 or more years ago, I can't remember now, we were on a holiday on a cruise ship and it anchored at Sivetsevecchia, which is the port of Rome. And Rome was just a two-hour drive away. And Rome's historic. I would have liked to have visited it. And with sitting in a, in a town just two hours away, it would have been simple to, for us to drive up to Rome, spend a day sightseeing, and go straight back to the ship. But we were warned that morning, don't try to get to Rome. Don't even attempt it. The roads are blocked because it was the day that Pope John II died. So we didn't get to Rome. Although there was one advantage. When I got home, there was a man from East Belfast some time later who was boasting that the day that he went to visit Rome, the Pope was out of town. I said, the day I went to Rome, he dropped dead. (laughs) Must have been the shock. Paul just says, I must go to Rome. But Paul wasn't like me. Paul wasn't a idle sightseer. He didn't want to go and see the Colosseum. It wasn't a well-earned break to do the tourist trail. When Paul was going to Rome, he was going to preach and to teach. But why? Because there had been a Christian church at Rome before Nero's persecution. It was comprised of converted Jews. Priscilla and Aquila was part of that church. Acts 18 and verse 2 says that there was a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. Paul had a policy. He had a missionary strategy. And we read about it in the book of Romans. If you turn your your hand, if you still have your hand in that page in Romans chapter 15, turn it back, or if you put your bookmark in it, and look what it says in verse 20. It says, I have strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, not where somebody else had already preached the gospel, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see. Now that was part of Paul's strategy. He didn't go to preach where there already was a church. He wanted to go into unevangelized fields. So why is he going to Rome? Maybe it's because the church that was meeting there now is an amalgam of cultures that need pastoral apostolic help for the Jews who had been ousted from Rome were coming back now. And the church that they had left was full of converted Gentiles and the whole character of the church has changed and Paul has to address this in his letter to the Romans. Maybe he wants to deliver the message of Romans in person as well. But there might also be another reason. Maybe Paul was going to use Rome as a staging post. Romans chapter 15 again. Verse 24 this time. Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. 
For I trust to see you in my journey and be brought on my way thitherward by you. Rome was a staging post to go to Spain. And maybe that's where Paul was going. Maybe his desire was to evangelize the people of Spain. Maybe Rome was the, or Spain was the final destination. The furthest west that Paul could go at this time would be to the Iberian Peninsula. And when he wrote to the Romans from Corinth, he mentioned that he wanted to visit Rome on his way to Spain. Perhaps Spain was that unevangelized field. Perhaps that's the solving, the answer to the mystery. F.F. Bruce here comments, For Paul, Spain is the new Macedonia. So Paul has a wonderful plan. It's conceived, and it's carefully drafted, and it's got a final destination, and then it's crushed, derailed. Paul will get to Rome, but he's not going to get to Rome by the route he's planned. Paul's intention is that he will make his roundabout trip to Jerusalem and then he's going to sail to Rome. But in Jerusalem, as we will see in a few weeks' time, his life is going to change forever. Paul's going to be arrested. He's going to be brought before the Jewish and the Roman authorities. He's going to claim the rights of Roman citizenship and he's going to be carried to Rome as a prisoner to answer before Caesar to face imprisonment and certain death. And that makes me think again about that young man and the evangelist. What about the wonderful plan God has for your life? You see, Paul thought he had a plan. He thought God was going to prosper that plan. But God had a completely different plan. Hadn't he? The plan that God has for your life may not be exactly what you think it might be. To imply that God is going to straighten out your life and to solve all your problems and grant you a happy and carefree existence from this time on is not a form of evangelism. It is to deliberately delude Someone who needs to hear the real message that there is forgiveness for sins. To delude an unsaved sinner into a commitment of some sort by promising them something that the Bible does not promise them is exceedingly dangerous to the soul. Of course God has a plan for your life, just like he has a plan for mine. I would say he even has a wonderful plan for your life, just like he has to mine. It might involve bringing me home to heavenly glory next week by way of an accident or a sudden illness. It might include living to an old age and enduring dementia or maybe long-term disability. How will the convert react then? You promise me God has a wonderful plan for my life. What's happened? Social media 
I recently had joined a Facebook group page for Acts Pentecostals. I don't really know why I did it. Don't really. Somebody invited me into it. That's why I did it. I thought it was a Christian group. It sounded like it. So I posted a link to some teaching that I had done on Pentecostalism. And it was subjected to a whole litany of abuse, foul-mouthed abuse. Ex-Pentecostals, who had become disillusioned with the vacuous offerings of fizzy pop Christianity. And instead of going and looking for the real thing, had simply assumed that because the promises they'd been made by their evangelists were so flimsy and so ill-founded that instead of looking for real Christianity in the scriptures, they had returned into ungodly living. God's plan for Paul's life was a perfect plan. God's plan for Paul's life would bring others into the kingdom. God's plan for Paul's life will bring glory to God, but it wasn't quite what he expected. Let's be careful not to make promises that God doesn't make and that God won't keep. So we've seen Rome. Let's look at Jerusalem. Verse 21 again. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, go to Jerusalem. I wanted to deal with this second, this first visit secondly, because I think it's interesting and challenging for those of us who operate an independent ecclesiology, who value the independence of the local assembly like we do. Um, We regard ourselves as a local assembly as being a complete and entire church, don't we? Um, With the Lord in its midst, we are meeting in his name. We are governed by elders. And the question for us is, as independents, how do we meaningfully relate in fellowship and support with other churches? And I want you to see Paul's proposed visit to Jerusalem for a moment. The purpose of the visit. Well, Paul, when he got there, would no doubt greet the church and its leaders. He had done that on other visits to Jerusalem. He would give a report on the progress of the gospel. But there was another motive. And Luke gives us a wee hint of it here, and we find it clearly in Paul's own writings. He's going to travel round the Gentile churches of Greece, and he's going to collect financial relief for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So I want you to turn with me for a wee moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul's writing from Ephesus to Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1 to 5, he's going to give some instruction for what he's doing for the saints at Jerusalem. Here's the, here's the, the account of it. 1 Corinthians 16 and 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. 
that there be no offerings or gatherings, rather, when I come. And when I come, whomsoever ye shall approve by your letters, them will I send to bring your liberality unto Jerusalem. And if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. Now I will come unto you when I pass through Macedonia, for I do pass through Macedonia. So Paul here is writing from Ephesus, verse 8. It says, I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. So round about the same time as the book of Acts is talking about here. And he's given instructions to the Christians, to Galatia. And he's writing now to the Corinthians. And in Romans 15, that passage that we read, he says, I now go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. Paul writing a little bit later on to the church at Rome. Now, why is all this necessary? Well, because there's a huge contrast between the Gentile churches in Asia Minor and in Greece compared with the church that's meeting in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem saints were impoverished, poverty-stricken. To be a Christian in Jerusalem, to be a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem, is to lose everything in this world. For a Jew to come, become a believer in Christ in Jerusalem is to lay aside his position in the community. His family will have disowned him. Never again could he or she speak to his parents or visit their home. Never could eat with their brothers or sisters. He would lose his inheritance. All his friends would shun him. To be a Christian in Jerusalem is a costly experience. When we come to Christ, we're told that we must take up our cross and follow him. Certainly that's what they did. That's what these men and women in Jerusalem had done. Discipleship has a cost. And they had paid that huge price. They had given up everything by trusting Jesus for salvation. And now they're deprived of wealthy sponsors. They're starved of their income. They have lost their jobs. The members of the Jerusalem church are deep in poverty. Paul writes, It hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints. Romans 15 and 26. The poor saints which are in Jerusalem. Now, in comparison with that, the Gentile saints were financially blessed. The Gentile saints lived in towns that were financially stable, trading towns like Ephesus, tourism resorts like Corinth, centres of education like Athens, strategic highways like Thessalonia. These new Gentile believers were from every strata of society. There were business people. There were government officials. There were the top echelons of society. Aquila and Priscilla were international business people. Lydia, the seller of purple, was a wealthy businesswoman. The Erastus of Romans 16 was a high-ranking city official. Romans 16 and verse 25. Gaius, mine host, 
and the whole church saluteth thee. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you, and Quartus, a brother. In Athens, Acts chapter 17, remember, some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief woman. There you are, there's more of them. So the Gentile saints are comparatively rich. The Gentile churches, rather. There were slaves in those churches as well, as we'll see. But they were relatively well off. The Jerusalem saints had nothing. Paul wants those Christians who are financially and materially blessed to show willing support for those who are in need. And what can we learn from that? Well, Paul is emphasizing here the unity of the body of Christ. Paul wants the Christians in the churches of Asia and Galatia and Macedonia and Greece to understand that the church is a far greater entity than their own local assembly of Christians. You see, that's where the challenge is for us. We're responsible for our brothers and sisters in the Lord, even those who do not meet in fellowship with us. We're an independent church. We believe that every local church is a complete church, that we are answerable only to God, that we are composed of visible saints met together in the name of the Lord Jesus, but we are not an island. We are part of the body of Christ, part of the invisible church. And there are churches in other denominations comprised of faithful saints all around us. And our challenge is to beware of being so inward looking that we become parochial. Not looking outside our own small world and finding out actively if there are ways that we can be a blessing to believers in other churches too. So Paul's emphasizing the unity of the body. And he's encouraging the exercise of Christian concern. I've no doubt that Paul would have been encouraging those believers in the Gentile churches to pray for the poor believers in Jerusalem. I've no doubt that he told them about the conditions there. I've no doubt that he relayed detailed accounts of the sacrifices that they had made when they followed Jesus. But you see, Christian love and concern for others always demands a practical response, doesn't it? We show our love for the brethren by ministering to their needs. About four or five years ago, I got a Christmas rebuke. I'm not a big fan of Christmas, you see. Um, In one of my previous churches, some wit nicknamed me the (laughs) anti-Santa because of my... uh, because of my curmudgeonly views on Christmas. And um, so I had been complaining again on Facebook. 
about the worldly celebration of that particular festival. And I had been trying to bring a gospel content into it and pointing to the real reason that the Saviour entered the world, that he came into the world to save sinners. And this woman from Belfast, she took great umbrage to that. She went into this rant about what she called the true meaning of Christmas, scolded me in bad language for my pointless words. After all, as she said, words are cheap. Why don't you go and do something about it? And she boasted in her post that while she wasn't a Christian like me, she was practical in her ways. For she spent her Christmas day in a soup kitchen serving food to homeless people. Not like me, just spouting words. Sadly, I was unable to reply to her or to defend myself. Well, first of all, because I didn't see her her foul-mouthed abuse on, until I got home very late on Christmas Day. Because that day, I had spent most of the day in the hospice with a woman who was dying. And I'm very, very glad to say that I led that woman, that dear soul, to the Lord before she passed away. And I spent a lot of time that Christmas day sitting with her. We sat at a table outside her wee room in the garden and she watched a wee robin red breast floating around and we talked about the Saviour. I didn't get a chance to tell her that. Because when I got home that night, it was late and I went to bed. And the next morning when I got up, I found that the woman on Facebook had blocked me. So I never got to defend myself. Paul is encouraging here us to say, we're not just to talk about our Christianity, we're to put it into practice. And he's teaching us the correct method of giving. He's urging the churches to do what is right. He's not laying down a law here. He's not, notice very carefully, he's not demanding a percentage. He's not asking to see their pay slips or to set up their standing orders before they become a member of the church. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, he says, Every man give according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And didn't it say in that text we read earlier, let him give as he has been blessed. Just two wee verses. And yet verses that are full of significance for us as believers. Remember, first of all, that God does indeed have a plan for our lives. It just may not be the plan that we think it's going to be. But it is a perfect plan. And the second, to remember that our Christianity is more than just our local assembly. It is a practical expression of faith for other brothers and sisters wherever we see need.